Hello, dear friends, and welcome to the Great Day Podcast. I'm your friend and host, Mayor K. I am so grateful and privileged to have you here listening, tuning into the Great Day Podcast. And today's episode is a very special one. Before we jump into it, though, I want to remind you that if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the podcast. It goes a long way. Rate it, comment, share it with your friends and family if the podcast thus far has brought you some value, if any at all. And if it has, please share it with your fellows, share it with your family, share it with your loved ones. And uh, if you are new to the podcast, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for tuning in. I do hope that you find this conversation enjoyable and insightful and be sure to check out the 50 plus episodes that we have on the podcast as well. Also, I just launched a Patreon for the podcast. You can go patreon.com slash the great day podcast. And there are some fun you know, tiers and incentives, but most of all, your support goes a long way. It really helps me to be able to curate new content and new episodes every Monday. So thank you so much for your support. Ellie Beer is today's guest. And Ellie Beer is the founder of United Hatzalah of Israel and president of the U.S.-based organization Friends of United Hatzalah. With over 6,000 volunteers and servicing over 400,000 people a year, at a very young age, Ellie witnessed the bombing of bus number 12 in Israel, which planted a seed within his being that when he grows up, he wants to save lives. And he's been doing just that. If you have any doubt about the power of one, of what one person can do, that doubt will be put to rest through this conversation. You see, Ellie shows us that with passion and a little chutzpah, we can be the change we want to see in the world. You can be that change. You can make a difference. Ellie is a fantastic storyteller and is a beautiful soul. I mean, this is, I believe, is one of my longest podcast episodes to date. There's so much goodness and inspiration shared in this following conversation. And I thank you for taking the time today to listen to this podcast episode with Ellie Beer on The Great Day Podcast. Ellie Beer here on the podcast. It's such an honor and a privilege to have you on, Elliot. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I can't, I can't wait to see you in person. But to be in with you on a podcast is almost, almost the same. Oh, thank you. My feelings are, are, are mirror yours, my friend. Last time I did see you, though, you were hanging out. It was Friday afternoon, holding a nice, responsible amount of glass of wine in your glass, overlooking this beautiful Jerusalem. And you were hanging out and chilling. I was so surprised because this is our first time connecting. You gave me the time of day. You were so calm, so present. And you were just in a beautiful zone, which surprised me because you're running Hatzalah, United Hatzalah, 6,000 volunteers, 300,000 cases a year, more. And you had this beautiful balance of tranquility around you. How, did, how, did you, how were you able to to be so present, even right now with me on this on this podcast, you're so chill. So yes, we had a great time with that uh, wine, Israeli wine. I love wine. And once a week, my family lets me drink a little wine, which is Friday mm. and Shabbos a little. Friday is Friday night, so we had a really good, good glass of Israeli wine overlooking Yerushalayim. That gives me the the, the, the really the, the battery I need. Uh, recharging for the, the week to come. You know, I see the worst tragedies in my life and I see the happiest things in life because yes, see people who survive, who wake up and you see babies born. And then you have to uh, get the balance. I think it's Shabbos is the greatest gift of the, of, of the Jewish people. So Arab Shabbos is to sit there in front of Yerushalayim in my home in Jerusalem and just look around and 
little sipping a little wine. <laughs> but a guy like you, though, Shabbos doesn't. I mean, the 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 peacefulness and the and the and tranquility of Shabbos does it always exist? Being that you are twenty four hours, seven days, day or night, you're always on call. That is so true. You know, for many years, I never drank on Shabbos because I was always on call. Because how can I drink and go out on a call on an ambicycle or on a ambulance yeah. or a car? You know, it's pikuach nefesh. You have to go to save lives. I, I go to shul, I go home, and then I get a call while I'm having Shabbat dinner. So I never had wine, but now you're not going to believe it. I have five Hatzalah volunteers in my home. My son-in-law, my three daughters, and my wife. All Hatzalah volunteers. Wow. So, on Shabbos, I'm like relaxing, so I could drink a little wine. <laughs> <laughs> Delegating. It's a family business over here. That's, that's yeah. incredible. That's amazing. So is that part of the process? If someone marries into the family, they have to sign up for United Hatzalah? We don't let you marry to the family before you're United Hatzalah. <laughs> <laughs> you're picking from the pool of volunteers, huh? I have four daughters and one son. So I have three or, you know, two are married. So one, Uri, is a volunteer of Hatzalah. He started when he was 15 years old. He volunteered at my daughter. And, uh, you know, he started a little behind my back. I didn't even know about this. Oh. Nah, they didn't really date. And then one day, Ura came and asked me for permission to date my daughter. And I was, like, quite shocked. He's a volunteer at Zella. I one of, he says, listen, we, I need your permission. If you say no, I'll, I'll just continue volunteering. It's fine. I'll give up my dream to marry your daughter. <laughs> wow, wow. This guy's smooth. I like that guy. And I said, okay, I have to, you know, I have to ask my you know, my second half. So I, I got approval. Get to give the okay? Get okay. And my second daughter, same thing. And now my third my third daughter is dating someone seriously. Who's a volunteer at Zella? Nice. <laughs> and, you know, it stays at home. They all love saving lives, which is amazing. That's amazing. I mean, listen, how can they not growing up in the home that you've built here? This is your your life, your dedication. You've built something from nothing from to this. You united hatsala which is known throughout the world saving tens of thousands of lives year by year was what kind of home did you grow up in what what were the principles that you were brought up with that carried uh, through to your adulthood today wow that's an amazing question because i never you know i i, I get interviewed many times but no one asked me where i got this from really from my home my parents were incredible people. My father, when he was a young boy, Gabriel Beers, he grew up in Lower East Side and he used to raise money while he was a child. Um, they had a Holocaust going on in Europe. My father was safe, he was in New York. But he went every single day after school, after yeshiva, he would go into stores and knock and ask people if they could give tzedakah to an organization called Bad HaHatzalah which was an organization to save Jewish people from Europe. And he went in and my father used to tell me these stories as a kid, how he used to raise like 20 cents, 30 cents, you know, a nickel, whatever it was then, and a dollar, $2, $5. And he said, sometimes people used to throw me out of their store. And he said, Jewish people used to say, the Jews in Europe are not interesting for us. We didn't, we have, let them take care of their own. We, we take care of American people. We are American now. And my tell me a story, and he would cry while he would tell me these stories, and I would cry. I couldn't believe, you know, knowing today that six million Jews were murdered in the worst ways ever in human race. Never been such a terrible murder in history, 
and my father was trying to help another Jewish person to live, and he would get humiliated sometimes and being thrown out of stores. And I grew up with these stories, and my father's telling me these stories about him after the state of Israel was trying to get built. My father went ahead and raising money to get to buy guns for the Etza. Wow. My father loved Begin, and he was a religious Jew. My father grew up in Lower East Side, went to Torvadas, and then he wanted to raise money to buy ammunition to protect the Jews who were in Israel and were getting, you know, they were getting killed all the time by, you know, people who were not happy with Jews coming into Israel from after the Holocaust. Jews were coming in, trying to get in, and they were killing them. And my father went ahead and he helped. And my father told me his stories. And I remember, this, this is our home. We always had guests. We always had guests. We didn't have a Shabbos, but we didn't have 10 guests over. Young Beautiful. Or girls in Israel or just families would come spend Shabbos with us. We had an open home to anyone. My father would meet someone in the street, where are you for Shabbos? Have him over. And he was a home of giving. And then one day, my father said, listen, we're trying to get the Jews out of Russia. I was a kid. My father had a business. He had a real estate business. He had a farm business. He was, uh, he was, um, he had a bookstore in Jerusalem. And, and he used to tell me, Ellie, we, I have to go to America to help with the Soviet Jews were not allowed to leave Russia. It was the SSR, whatever it was called that. USSR. Yeah, USSR. And, and my father said, you know what? I was 15 years old. My father took me with him to America. My first time he came in, I was first in camp and then he came in and he took me to two meetings and I couldn't believe it. He was talking about the Jews in Russia like it's his own family. Mm. I was like blown away. It's not, you don't have any family in Russia. We're all Americans. Like, come on, what's the tell? He says, he was telling stories and he was crying about stories about different people like, you know, Nathan Sharansky and others, hundreds like him who were, were, were in Siberia because they believed in, in Judaism and they lived in Israel. And my father helped them raising money for them to get him out of there. And later on, I found that it was a whole movement that he was involved with. And that's what brought me to, to believe that if we don't do something good in this world, there isn't a reason for us to be here. Wow. So you found earlier on, you found these, these incredible, like the obviously Israel, the dedication, the oneness between, between the importance of helping each other as a, as a, as a nation um, from the way your father showed up to life. And that's something that really had, shows through in your way of being as well in, in tremendous ways. What yeah, are... You know, Mm -hmm. I, I'll share a story with you about my father. My father had a, he had a, he was a partnership in a, in a land in Israel that turned out to be a cemetery in the end. And when I was a kid, my father started building this, it was Eretz HaChaim in Beit Shemesh. He was, my father was developing it then. And with another very famous person in Israel. And uh, he got into it by mistake. He moved to Israel in 1969. He was looking to do something business there. And he moved with six kids, and I was born after in 1973. And my father was very involved with that thing. And then later on, when I was 15, I'll tell you a story you probably know about Atzala, how I went to volunteer in the back of an ambulance. Yeah. And uh, later on, I decided the system doesn't work. We don't get there fast enough. You know, we would wait too long for ambulance to arrive. Yeah. So I started this organization a year and a half later. My father, as a joke, said to me, Ellie, you know, you're going to start saving lives. You're killing my business. <laughs> <laughs> Working and against them. 
he was very funny, my father. He had a good sense of humor. And but years later, he was always saying, Ellie, you're putting all your time into building this organization of saving lives. Why don't you put most of your time into business and just let other people do it? I said, Dad, I want to save lives more importantly than anything. Mm-hmm. And anything you could do. So one day my father had a cardiac arrest on Shabbat afternoon. And my father was sitting having lunch with my mother. He lived two buildings away from me. Once in a while, he liked it some romantic time without my kids running around. Him. And he was alone. And, and the neighbor came and said, my father's not feeling well. I ran to him. And I saw my father collapse in front of my eyes, have cardiac arrest. And within seconds, Hatzala volunteers came. Seconds. The first one was an Arab volunteer of Hatzala. He was passing by in the neighborhood and he got an alert on his phone. You're the closest. Oh, came, wow. Rabbi came and we did CPR my father, nine minutes. We shocked him with a defibrillator and he got his heart back. And eventually in the hospital, he woke up, it was 100% normal. He said to me, Ellie, I can't believe I used to get around with you. You're, you're putting too much time into that cell. You can put all the time you need. You get a paycheck from me. Wow, you came, you, you, it came full circle until, until it's needed for the one person. Wow, you, so you're, you literally your service that you started years ago saved your father's life and the many, many others. And you touch on so many beautiful points, whether it was through the interfaith of volunteers that take place. And I want to cover it all, Ellie, because there's so much beauty to unpack in this United Hatzala organization that you've built. But before we delve into that, I really wanted to go to some people may know your story, some may not. But take me back to that day, six years old, walking on the street of Jerusalem. Well, that was uh, a Friday afternoon. You know, I was a very um, independent kid coming back from school. As a child, I, you know, I used to, my parents both worked hard. So I used to come back home. I had a key. It was a, in Hebrew, they call it Yelet Mafteach. In Hebrew, it's a Yelet Mafteach, a kid who has a key home. He comes home alone, and my mother was working. I used to make my own food as a child. Were you the oldest? What? Were you the oldest in your family? I was the youngest. Ah, everybody's out of the house. Kids, that was a very big difference between my brothers and me and sisters. I was born in Israel. They were all born in the States. And uh, um, I was coming back from school, and then they had a terrible bombing, on a, a, a noise, a terrible noise. I didn't know what a bombing was. Who knew what bombing was in 1978? It's not like... They had bombings like in some point in Israel every week. This is a one-time episode then. And the bus blew up. The bus not far from me blew up. People were screaming, people were running in the streets. It was a small neighborhood, a Bayit Vagana was called, a very small neighborhood next to Yad Vashem. Um, and uh, I remember people just laying there in the street and screaming for help. And um, it was a terrible, terrible experience as a child to see this. I didn't understand what the whole conflict was, why terrorism started and PLO and all these bad people that wanted to kill us. And uh, I grew up, all I wanted to do is help people save them because I saw people laying on the floor and I couldn't save them. I didn't know what to do. Wow, and deep. I, I'm leaving on the floor. And then when I was a young student in school, I said, you know what, I'll be a doctor, but I was a very bad student. <laughs> <laughs> I had ADD and every other, any other, you know, uh, thing you could think of. You know what AD, ADD stands for? ADHD. Attention deficit. Oh, donut. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, I uh, I couldn't I can sit in school and then school in Yiddish. You probably know Yiddish. Zitzvah. You know, I didn't. Have a- oh man, Ellie, you and me the same. You kidding me? Couldn't sit down more than five. I know we we were the same. Yeah, uh, different schools, but the same behavior. Yeah, same character, same neshama. But I, so I, I feel I, you. I decided I'm I'm going to do the easy path. If I want to save lives, instead of going to be a doctor, I'll go volunteer in an ambulance. In Israel, you could do that when you're 15. Start volunteering ambulance. So it's a it's a big ambulance service, national ambulance service. They have it's a union, very powerful, but they have a volunteer uh, corps that helps them out. And I went to study. I went. It was a 44 hour course, minimum course, and you joined to be a volunteer on an ambulance. And I was sure the first time I'm in the back of an ambulance, I will be saving people. And then uh, I go. Um, I joined the ambulance. I was the happiest ambulance. My parents were so happy for me. Finally, I'm on the I'm saving people and it's so exciting you sit there and the siren goes off and you're like driving through traffic and you don't have to stop at a red light you know the driver yeah. I'm, not driving, I'm in the back but it's exciting and um at the end of the day my father waits for me i come back at almost 12 o'clock at midnight and my father's waiting up for me he was sitting on his couch and he sees me and he says new did you save anyone today so i said oh, no we helped this lady at a schedule this problem, that problem, but we had one incident, this very bad incident, this woman, she had a heart attack, but she, we, we came there, we did everything we could, and then unfortunately, about, we did CPR, it was my first CPR, and she didn't make it. And my father says, well, next week, and next week, I go again, I volunteer for eight hours, and this went on for a year and a half. I, after like three or four times, my father said, did you save anyone? I said, dad, stop asking that annoying question. I said, it's not so simple to save people. It looks simple. We learn in school, CPR, the ante and everything, but it doesn't happen. When someone has a heart attack, they die. It says, you know, one day you'll get to save someone. Don't worry. Don't give up on your dream. Just continue for a year and a half. And then I realized, I started writing down every emergency, what happened, like when it happened, when did we receive, when did we get there? And I realized response time is about almost 20 minutes, which is... It's- I don't stop reading for 20 minutes. And after about a year and a half, we had a call of a seven-year-old boy choking. We were, we were coming out of a, a hospital in Mount Scopus in Jerusalem. And you're like 17, 18 now? How old are you now? 16 and a half years old. Okay. And I used to write down emergency calls, what time, you know, I used to make statistics. And we came out of a hospital. They said, who's available in Jerusalem for a call? Uh, like a SOS call, like a real uh, code red, like you say. And the driver of the ambulance picks up the walkie-talkie. He says, I'm available. I just finished a call. They said, rush to Bifagan, the same neighborhood I grew in. They have a kid choking. We rush. The driver puts on the siren. And he drives like a maniac, like an Israeli maniac. <laughs> Through every traffic thing he could. And then we got stuck in a terrible traffic jam. He had to turn around and go to another I was like praying in the back, this kid should not die. And I was flying from one side to another side. And finally we arrived to this address and we hear the screaming of the mother, screaming and crying. It was 21 minutes after we got the call. Mm-hmm. And we were rushing up, we get to the top floor of a building and we start performing CPR and a ch- child was completely cold, blue. And the mother didn't know what to do with her kid choked while he was having lunch. And uh, we worked for a few minutes and then a doctor who was 
walking by, he was walking his dog and he saw the ambulance parked down. And, and you know, in Israel, they see an ambulance, they want to know what's going on, but he's a doctor. He said, oh, maybe they need my help. He comes up and he says, I'm a doctor, emergency doctor. Says, and he sees the situation, he comes, joins us, and he starts running the whole show and everything. We were all EMTs, low level, basic life support. And he's like, after 20 minutes of work, sweating there and crying. We, we were crying with the mother. And the, the doctor says, there's nothing we could do, just bring a sheet to cover him. And it was like the worst moment of my life, seeing a child who was seven years old, and his mother was, and his father came, they, they were yelling at us that we are the murderers. And he came two hours late, which wasn't two hours, but it seemed like to them for two hours. And it was like, I said, I'm done. I'm not gonna continue volunteering. It doesn't make sense. We can't save any lives. Ambulances don't save lives. We help people, but we don't save people. And that moment I realized I had an epiphany I said, if this doctor lived a few blocks away and he was just walking his dog while this kid was suffocating to death, what would have happened if they would have called this doctor and say, doctor, if you're nearby, just run over to save this kid while the ambulance is stuck. I said, why don't we get a bunch of people like this doctor who wants to help and train people like me and go and respond to emergencies before ambulance arrive and stabilize patients and and, and save their lives and save their damage to their lungs and, and damage to their hearts and brain damage. So I went over to the ambulance union, the head of the ambulance union, and I asked him if he wants to cooperate with us and we want to do this. And he didn't like the idea at all. If someone needs help, they must wait for it. They had ambulance, they had a wonderful ambulance service. They had seven or nine ambulances available for people in Jerusalem. That's amazing. But still, the timing for that was 20 minutes. Like, the, I mean, the traffic is crazy. The roads was, are wide. If they were lucky, five minutes. If they were unlucky, 25 minutes, 30 minutes. It, it matters. If they had an ambulance available in the city, don't forget every city, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, New York, Mexico City, they have uh, resources for the emergency resources. What happens if they have a big event somewhere or a few events together and all the ambulance available? So you have to bring an ambulance from another city. Or they have to wait till the ambulance gets available. It's like it's like a taxi service. I don't know if you remember years ago before Uber, you used to call a car service in uh, Crown Heights, right? Yeah, over there in Union, Union Car Service. Yeah, you used to get it and you used to come. You used to order them in advance if you needed, you know? But unfortunately, when people have heart attacks or choking, they can't order in advance. They have to call at the same time. But what happens if 10 people call at the same time? You're lucky if you get one. If you don't get one, you don't get one. And I realized that if you have people who are near emergencies, you could have a 90-second response. Because the minute the doctor saw the ambulance, he ran upstairs. So they didn't want to hear this idea. They just said, no, it's not, a, it's not for us. So I was like a very stubborn Israeli child with an American background. <laughs> said, I'm going to get... These guys don't want to cooperate with us. I'm going to get this information about emergency calls without them. They don't emergency calls without. So I had some bar mitzvah money that I always kept for rainy days. And this I is what you invested in. I took the bar mitzvah money. I had most of it. I bought two police scanners from Radio Shack in New York. Wow. Strong yeah. hustle. Wow. What a, what a move. I'm going to buff emergency calls from them. We're going to break into their emergency system. 
by finding the frequency of the of their walkie-talkies. And you can hear everything that's going on. They don't, you know, they, they just share the information for their systems. You can hear taxis, you can hear police, you can hear ambulances or fire. Uh, we were listening into the ambulances. Wow, what chutzpah. What uh, brassness that is to, to step up and to, and to start doing that. When you would show up to, to, uh, to, to a scene, would they turn to each other, like, who's this guy? Like, what's, what's he doing here? Who brought, who brought the kid? So the first time I actually went out to call was an amazing call. I didn't, of course, I, I didn't tell anyone about our new initiative. It was just in between us. Uh, by the way, getting into Israel was illegal then. You know, we weren't allowed to bring walkie-talkie. Scanners. Scanners, Israel. I mean, you know Israel. They're very tough about anything. So um, I went ahead and I got these scanners and I'm listening into the calls. I'm working for my father in his bookshop. I'm, the walkie-talkie's on my belt. I'm so, I feel important. Pressure. Uh-huh. Important. Let's throw in a couple I'm of listening to the walkie-talkie and they say Jaffo Street. Oh, that's too far. They say this. All of a sudden I hear Hapizgah Street. This is on the street my father's bookshop. And I stop selling the books. I just run out of the store. The guy that I was serving thought I'm crazy. And I hear a car accident. I just run there. I see a guy on the street 30 seconds after I got, it took me 30 seconds to get there. And I get there, the person's on the, on the floor, a car hit him and he's bleeding everywhere. And I see a terrible bleeding on his neck. People surrounding me, no one knows what to do. I'm the, I'm the hero here. I know what to do. So I run over to him and he's not talking, but I see he's bleeding and he's it just happened this a minute ago. So I, I take my yarmulke, I didn't have bandages. I take my yarmulke off my head. I had a big one then. And I, I folded it and I push it in to this person's neck. I'm pushing it in, trying to stop the bleeding as a tourniquet. And then a while later, an ambulance shows up and People were trying to help me. No one had bandages. So that's what I used. And they took it. They took the person. They wrapped them up. And they took him. The ambulance driver says to me, how did you get here? I said, oh, I, I saw, you know, I, was, I was here. You know, my father's bookshop. Okay. They go away. And I thought this guy's not going to make it. Because I've seen accidents last year and a half. I'm a volunteer. I saw terrible accidents like this. People didn't make it. And then I get a phone call. Two days later, this man says, are you Ellie Beer? I said, yes. He says, well, my father was treated by you two days ago and you saved his life. He woke up this morning at Adasa Hospital. And I was like, I can't believe it. He says, my father wants to say thank you for saving his life. So I started crying. I was like the best feeling in the world. You finally saved life. Finally saved someone. I'm a year and a half in the back of the ambulance. I'm finally the lifesaver. And I, I said, can I come visit your father? He says, of course. I came to Adasa Hospital. I'm coming into this room with family surrounding him. And I said, I'm going to leave here. And they were so excited to see me. They're all like, you know, like excited. And, I, and, they, and the man says, Boy, and I hear it. Come here, kid. I want to give you a hug. And he says, Thank you for saving me. And I was such a great feeling. That hug was the best hug. And then he takes his hands off me. And I see he has a number right here. Wow. He has a stamped number on his hand. And I was like, that was like the moment of my life that I everything changed for me. That moment, seeing this man in the hospital with a stamp on his hand, like a tattoo number that wasn't given to him because he wanted it. 
Yeah. He was a Holocaust survivor. And for me to save a Holocaust survivor, I grew up in a home where we didn't have any Holocaust survivors. All the cousins were murdered. And my family was from New York. So my close family, my grandmother was in New York. I never felt that hug from a Holocaust survivor. And I said, wow, if I could save one person, I could save more. And then this doctor, this very Israeli doctor, his name is Professor Dr. Rifkin, comes into the room. And he's today a professor, very Israeli. He says, who's the kid who treated him? I said, he says, you're the kid? Okay, two things. First, you should just know he was on Kumadine, which is a blood thinner. And if it wasn't you stopping his bleeding, you would have been dead. Says next time, don't use a yarmulke if you want to save someone. Get a real bandage to stop bleeding. <laughs> use a yarmulke. You says, guys, even within the compliment, they have to throw in a little shade. <laughs> he says to me, "You want to use a yarmulke to take hot stuff out of the oven? That's okay. Right. Not to stop bleeding." He says, "I said that's the only thing I had." He said, "That's fine, but buy some bandages if you want to be a hero." So I took his compliment, and I went ahead and I bought the first bag of oxygen uh, bandages, you know, this oxygen tank you see here, carried everywhere with me, a bag with all the medical stuff I need. I don't have to use any, anything else besides the stuff in my bag. And I said, if I get enough volunteers with these bags, with the defibrillator, they didn't have defibrillators then, but if I get enough volunteers, we'll have this medical supplies and we'll know what to do. I need to get some more walkie-talkie scanners from America. Coming in operation. So we have to start this operation. That's a pivotal moment in your in in your in your life. What what kind of you know, just as you're growing up, you're now in your like mid eight, you know, teens, and you have like this this like chutzpah, you have this uh, ambition to now go and save lives and to really turn this into something real. What kind of sacrifices do you have to to give up as this, you know, a young teenager living in Israel? Um, was there much you had to do or did you enroll your friends and say, hey guys, let's do this. Let's make this happen. What was your next move and what challenges did you come up against earlier on? Well, I didn't have to sacrifice anything. I had the best time of my life. I really didn't sacrifice a thing in my life. Of course, I could have been richer. I could have had more time with my family. I could have had this, but I think there is nothing more important than what I'm doing and more fulfilling in terms of, I promise you, I never have a day that I don't feel that I did what I had to do. This is, this is the biggest accomplishment in my, I'm not fulfilled yet, I have more. I wanna make sure no one ever dies from choking from Holocaust. No one. There is no reason a person should die from choking. It's the same reason there is no reason, the same thing, there is no reason they should have airplane crash. They do everything in the world to make sure airplanes don't crash, Yeah. right? If you would think of how many hundreds of thousands of people, how many thousands and thousands of people, I don't know the exact number, die every day around the world choking. Thousands. Why? There isn't thousands of people dying from crash, airplane crashes. You could prevent this by having professional people have all the emergency calls routed to them, like we do to our volunteers. That's a great, yeah, Life Compass app, right? Yeah. Genius. No reason in the world today, if you think about it, you go out, you want to go to an airport, you're, you're, in, you're in LA or in New York or in, uh, in Paris. You just take an app, press Uber, Lyft, or whatever these companies are today. 
You press a button, this is my address, this is where I want to go. Two minutes later, someone's nearby you. You call an ambulance, 15 minutes, an ambulance arrives. Why? And that's something I wanted to fix when I was 16 and a half years old. And I'm happy that I was able to do that in our way in Israel. Now we have the fastest medical response in the world. We have over 6,000 volunteers who are spread all around the country. And they are waiting to get emergencies calls the same way Uber drivers are waiting to drive someone to the airport. But our volunteers who are doing this get zero in return. The only thing they get is satisfaction. Huge. What was that? I mean, the response time for these amb- uh, for these um, for the ambu cycle are is three minutes or less. You know, with this new system that you have, it, it blew. It's it's so innovative and so different. What was that meeting look? What did that look like? Was it just you thinking about it? Was there a team? Like, how did you come up across? Like, this is something that we need. Well, this ambicycle thing was part of the system. The system was an idea of having a network of people. It's very much like, if you think about it, very much like Uber. I mean, I'm using Uber now as an example, but I have many other companies like them um, that give service basically by having a network of people everywhere. So you don't have one centralized place like ambulances and they have all the ambulances parked in one place or in the hospital or whatever and then someone calls for help they send that ambulance think about we were trying to create and we did create thousands of people who are spread everywhere and they and they stop everything they do and they want to help people while the ambulance is on the way so we had a problem we saw a problem we wanted to fix it and it was easy to fix because people want to be heroes. People want to save lives. Yeah. What's the biggest challenge for United Hatsala today? So the biggest challenge is just breaking barriers, breaking bureaucracy. You know, I always say. What do you come up against? What? What do you come up against? What's something that keeps showing up? What's Look, I still have a problem. We, we started this organization by breaking in the system of ambulances sharing emergency calls. We wanna make sure that all ambulance emergency calls are open source. They should not have priority of deciding who will get the emergency or not. They make money from it. All ambulances that tra- transport Israel, they have to make a, mo- a living. They, they have to pay salaries, they have thousands of salaries. They have a union, they have to take care of their workers, which is acceptable, but I don't think it's acceptable if someone has an emergency call, if someone in trouble, no matter if it's a child, three years old, or a 95-year-old man who's having a heart attack. That person needs a 90-second response. So ambulances always think this is their client. This is their, you know, this is their patient client. They need to take them to the hospital because that's how they make their, 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 that's how they bill. We don't think that should be. We think that if some, someone needs help, big microphone should go all over the country screaming who's close to mr cohen who's having a heart attack run over and save that mr cohen right so we have technology that could do this but the barriers are still there bureaucracy is still there and we want to make sure that no one will stop us from saving lives so thank god we're still we have a good system but it could be better it could be faster we want to make sure that they have a like an it should be not only in israel everywhere around the world sure you are sitting now in LA, and I know you, Mayor. If you know your neighbor, God forbid, is choking or have or drowning in the pool, and they call for a nine one one, you want to be there helping them. Hundred percent. Yeah. If you would scre- hear them screaming, you would run out of the 
In the middle of the interview, if you hear someone screaming, Ellie, so sorry, I have to stop this. I have someone screaming, I don't know why, but I wanna go help them. Think about it. Think about the world, how, how much better it would be if you, if you don't have to hear screaming, you just have an app on your phone saying, Mayor, emergency, emergency, someone needs your help. And that's, and that's something that you're, you're, you're implementing throughout the world. I know you're doing a lot of training throughout the world for different EMS systems, but is this a long-term, is this a five-year plan of, of, of not just in Israel, but throughout the world to implement this, to train regular people, everyday, the everyday folk to, to know what they, just a little bit, so they're able to save a life and get, download that app. Let that be the most trending app of today. Well, that's exactly my goal. I want to make sure there's Ratashem that not only we save lives of everyone in Israel, but the world learns from us. The Kiddush Hashem, the Tikkun Olam of, think about it, in Africa, every village in Africa, every city in, in America or in Europe or in South America or in any country in, in Australia, they will take this, implement this idea. That will be my accomplishment. If I know that the world will change and say, you know what, we could save Millions and millions of more people a year if we have this system. I know I proved it in Israel. We treated this year 540,000 people. This is the hardest year of our life. You know what we're going through? Yeah. I went personally and everything. And this year was the hardest year of United Hatzalah. Financially, we had to raise money to go through, you know, buying oxygen and buying equipment and, and buying more ambicycles. And it's challenging to raise money, but we continued our work. We didn't stop for a second, and we went up to 540,000 emergency. This is not our job. This is our responsibility. We don't get paid for this. When I help Mrs. Bernstein, the 90-year-old lady who is on the floor now, and I'm helping her get up to her bed and helping her and giving her a cup of tea because no one else is there to help her. If she calls for an ambulance, she will be charged, and she doesn't have money for calling for an ambulance. So she calls United Hatzalah, and we're there. We don't, it's not our job, but it's as a human being, it's my responsibility to help someone who's in need. And I think this should be everywhere in the world, everywhere in Arab countries. I went to Dubai and spoke about this in front of the rulers of Dubai, saying, you know what, this is this United Atzala is in Israel, a few hundred miles away. You could implement this here in Dubai. Have these sheikhs with the ambicycle drive on uh, with the white uh, thing. Yeah an orange jacket and going to save people. And they like it because it's the, it's the truth. This is it's, the best. It's humanity at its best. In 2006, you changed the name to United Hatzalah because you started to combine the different programs and you, and you started bringing in different face and different people from different face to be part, volunteering within that. Was that, a, was that something that didn't exist beforehand? What shifted in the organization to start bringing in different volunteers from different backgrounds? I'll tell you, we, we, I mean, if you look at Hatzalah, Hatzalah exists in New York, in, uh, in LA, in many places, in all the Jewish communities. Hatzalah is an amazing organization. New York, Crown Heights, in Bar Park, in Williamsburg, amazing, amazing people. Same way in Israel. We, we created this in the Jewish communities. We started in a very small Orthodox community in Jerusalem. We went to B'nai Brak, went to Haifa, and went here, but all religious communities. And then one day I realized that we as religious Jews, we get the fastest response, but it doesn't make sense that someone who's not in a religious community who wants to be saved has to wait for 20 minutes or 15 minutes for an ambulance. So I started recruiting non-religious volunteers to Hatzalah, and it actually was the best thing we ever did. Because it's not like we didn't want them in the beginning, but it was like, 
you know, like in Israel, everything is sector, you know. Yeah. Everyone's alone, you know, you, you have all the Hasidim. Every Hasid is, is his own rabbi, his own rebbe, his own this. Every Litvak is alone, every this and that. And I said, you know what, let's connect all the Jews together. And then one day, I get a phone call from an Arab person. He says, my name is Murad Aliyan. And I'm with another guy called Muhammad Asli. I want to talk to you. I said, what is it about? He says, I want to talk to you about Hazola. And I, I couldn't understand it, what he said, Hazola. He, he couldn't pronounce the name. Right. I said, he said, I thought he said Hezbollah. <laughs> I said, do you want to talk to me about Hezbollah? He said, no, no, answer. Hezbollah, Hazola. I said, okay. <laughs> That's the bad guy. It's a Hezbollah. <laughs> I said, what do you want to talk about? I said, I thought maybe he wants to sell me something. I don't know, medical supplies or whatever. I said, uh, what is it about? He said, I want to become a volunteer with Sela. Wow. Said, These guys out of my back. Like, come on, we, never, we don't have Arabs in our Sela. You know, we never had anyone who's not Jewish. It was all Jewish. We had secular Jews and religious Jews, but never Arabs. And then I said, you know what? Sounds interesting. This guy says, I really want to meet you. I said, okay, come by. We met. Um, and they say to me, Muhammad says, my father collapsed. We live in East Jerusalem. We waited 55 minutes for an ambulance. He says, my father was dying in front of my eyes. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any training. I said, finally, the ambulance came. They worked on my father and he died. And we have a bunch of, I have brothers and sisters, young kids. He says, my father died. I could have saved him if I knew what to do. I want to now save other people. I want to do it in my memory of my father. And he was saying that, and I had chills in my whole body. I said, you know, I told him, Muhammad, when I started Salah, it wasn't about saving Jewish people. It was saving people. That was the whole goal. We never had, oh, let's help Jews. It was, you know, we save people. And I said, Muhammad, I'll join you in together only if you bring 25 other people with you. Wow. Arabs. And they said, I said, I'm not going to join only you. I want 25 of your friends. Get them together. I'll join you in. We'll do a course. We'll train you. We'll join you into Hatzalah. And when I met these people that joined in, I saw fathers and mothers of children who want to be lifesavers. You know, children of parents who are older and want to save their parents. But not only that, they said, we want to save everyone. We want to save Jewish people and anyone. So I said to myself, Hashem gave me this chut to do not only a life-saving mission, but a Kiddush Hashem mission. And I said to everyone, I said, all these guys who welcome to United Hatzalah, and I changed the name from Hatzalah to United Hatzalah in April. What a big move. How did that change your perspective um, on other religions? I mean, you, you seem like you were very open-minded since the beginning. You even said it wasn't about saving a Jewish life, it was saving a life. Um, but is that sort of the, the world that and the life the home that you grew up in with that openness, with that acceptance? Because um, sometimes we could come across people who are a bit more focused on the Jewish life. And not to, I'm not judging that in any sense of the word, of course, but to have this openness, this tikkun olam approach to the world is somewhat unique. Where, where did that, is that something that you worked on or was that come naturally? And, and how is that, how is that perceived earlier on when you wanted to start bringing people on? Did you have any pushback? Well, I'll tell you what, I never really realized, you know, we, and I grew up in Israel. The first thing I saw when I was six years old, you know, as a bomb attack. Who did it? Arabs. Yeah. So I never really had any relationship with Arabs. I never thought anything good about Arabs as, as a child. And I realized growing up, and by the way, my parents were very, 
very like that. My father never let me say bad things about other religions. Hashem created everyone in the world. Hashem not only created the Jews. We have a responsibility as Jews to be, to make a kiddush Hashem. My father always says, when you go as a Jew, you have a responsibility. You can't do things that are not appropriate because you're Jewish and you have to do a kiddush Hashem. My father always taught us to treat other people the same as we treat ourselves. And my father once rescued a woman in Israel and she was in a situation, she was a tourist and she wasn't dressed appropriate and she went to a place that in Mesherim, that she wasn't accepted properly. People were yelling at her. My father went and he was screaming at them. Leave her alone, she doesn't know. She came in, she really came in not appropriate to the area, which she didn't realize, it was a mistake. And my father went ahead and my father was so proud of it that he did that. And he put her in a car and he took her out of the neighborhood. And then he said, if you need anything, you're always welcome to come to our home. My, my mother was so proud that my father did this. And he's always like that. And when I got this call from Muhammad and Murad, I was like, you know what? This is not by accident. This is everything meant to be. I'm not giving less service to my brothers and sisters the Jews. I'm giving more service. By adding Arabs to United Atsala, we're giving a, a broader network. We're going to get to 90 seconds everywhere. And if you remember, they had a bunch of yeshiva students, three yeshiva students who were attacked in 2000, Intifada, the second Intifada that started, Arab Yom Rosh Hashanah. Their picture was in the New York Times. They thought they were Palestinians and were beaten up by soldiers. If you remember, yes. front page of New York Times, picture Palestinians getting beaten up by soldiers. It was actually yeshiva students that were attacked by Palestinian, you know, people, bad people that were doing bad things to them in Intifada. Part of the people that were saving them then were, we had an Arab volunteer that was helping us there and helping. So this was one of the first ones that actually, he didn't join yet, but he was later on, he, because what he did, he was one of the volunteers that joined. And he told me, Ellie, I was there helping these students get out of there. Wow. And then later on in, in the attack they had in the Harabayat just a couple of years ago, three Israeli policemen were, they're actually Druze Israeli policemen. They were shot by a terrorist on Harabayat, on the holiest place the Muslims and Jews and, and other religions think. We, for us, the Jewish this is Beit HaMikdash. And they also have a mosque there. And he attacked three Israeli soldiers and two of them were killed. And the third one was treated by an Arab United Atzala volunteer who came with an ambicycle into Harabayat because he lives nearby and he saved the third soldier, a policeman. And he got an award for it afterwards. And he got attacked by Palestinians who said, how could you as a Palestinian Arab guy, you save an Israeli soldier? And he says, I save a human being. Wow. So the fact that I did this is not, it's all Hashem. I mean, I'm a believer that this is Bashar. This is meant to be. I believe that every human being has a right to be saved and saved. I believe, I believe that what these actions were did is saving many, many of our own brothers and sisters and their brothers and sisters because the connection between lives, saving lives is so huge. Mm. That's a beautiful thing. I mean, to be able to be a facilitator and to open up, I'm sure many people's first time experience to be able to work with someone from a different faith in Israel and in, in Jerusalem and throughout is, is a massive opportunity of, of peace and growth and understanding and respect. I even know now with the UAE deal, many of my uh, friends are 
flying to there. And they're experiencing hospitality and kindness and conversation with, with Arabs who at one point they thought this, this is what they believe. This is what they want from us. They want to destroy us. And they, of course, like you mentioned, there are those who are, who aren't, who are bad and who aren't have a good will in mind. And then there are people who just want the same thing as us. They want peace. They want respect. They want harmonious tranquility for their family and, and growth. So it's, it's, it's a huge, huge thing that you're that you're doing. A huge, um, a huge um, service to the world. What keeps you up at night? You know, I'm worried. I'm always worried about, you know, making sure the organization does its mission and continues and has resources to do it. That's my main main concern. I'm really worried because building an organization is quite easy, but keeping it going is hard. Um, and I'm happy. I wake up in the morning after a couple of hours of sleep and I see the reports from the night before how many people got help. And I say, wow, you know, I'm sleeping and people are helping. It's just amazing. I sleep a couple of hours, not many, but I see reports coming in. You know, last night we treated 700 people. Like it's amazing during the night, 700 people got treated. That's amazing. It's true. I mean, you are president of United Hatsela, but you're also managing the beer realty, your family business, as well as you have a, a wife, you got five kids. I mean, how do you, how do you add more hours into a 24-hour day? How do you have 60-hour days, Elliot? What's, what's the secret to, the, to all this balance that you find in the time that you create for yourself? I'll tell you what, it's, it's just amazing to see how much you could do when you're busy. The busier I am, I accomplish more things. And I always, I realize that, you know, doing business with busy people is the most rewarding thing, you know? I'm busy, I don't have time to eat sometimes, but I, I, I get everything in. I have an agenda. I know what my purpose is in life. My family knows, everyone gives into my agenda and they all join into the agenda. Like we spoke before, like every single person I know falls in love with this idea and said, I wanna be part of it. And they stay in forever. I mean, I don't have people in a cell who come in for a year. This is a lifetime mission. And I have people, incredible people. I'm busy with my mission now is spreading the word of Atzala, raising the funds needed for Atzala. And the operations are going. I was asleep for a month. You know that. Yeah. Operations were going. And it's just amazing to see United Atzala is alive. And I worry about it because it's, it's, it's the end of the day, it's my baby. But have so many other people who feel like it's theirs the same way I feel it's mine. Wow. And how do you, how do you instill that within somebody, someone who's leading a business right now or an organization, how do you instill that? Cause it is your baby. You, you invested all that time and all that money and resources to build this up. But how do you enroll somebody into the same dream, into the same possibility and to, and to gift them this the same yearning to want to keep this thing going and growing? Every single time I meet a new volunteer, I give them that hug that I got when I was 16 and a half years old from that Holocaust survivor who I saved. I give the same hug. I don't have the stamp of the Nazis on my hand, but I have that feeling that I give the people that join in and I make sure they all feel it's their organization. This is not my organization. I am one of the founders, which I say, it's so many great people. Like I, I tell them, you're the founder, you're the founder. Everyone's a founder of this. This is not an idea that came in. I build, you know, Amazon was built by one person. He owns Amazon. He's a billionaire. He owns a hundred million billion dollars, whatever. I'm 
I had a vision and I got a lot of people to join in. This chut, this merit of saving lives is, is born to all of us. Every time we save a life, you know, I once heard a, a rabbi say to me, very wise person, because we had a fight between a guy, a, a volunteer of ours was, was fired by his employee because he was going to save a life. Erev Pesach, he was delivering chickens for, for, for a butcher shop in Jerusalem and he was, he was so busy with delivering chickens and, and he forgot about the chickens because he was so busy but he had an emergency call of a, of a real emergency and he saved the life of a child. And it took him like 45 minutes or an hour and his boss fired him. And, 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 he, and he was calling me, he was crying on the phone. I felt like I was fired because he's a volunteer at Sela. Like, how can I leave him alone? I went ahead trying to convince him, his boss, bring him back to work. You know, he said, no, it's done. He goes out for so many calls. He's always responsible. He's not responsible. I need someone who's not in that cell to volunteer for me, to work for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm cellar more than he's working for me. So I said to him, you know what? I'll do, I'm going to take you to a din tour, to a, like a court case. Take him to court. Yeah, Jewish court. You don't bring him back to work. I'm going to take him to a Jewish court. And they're going to take away your kosher stamp from your, from your butcher shop. Ooh. At least playing hardball over here. So I, I, we went to this rabbi, very wise rabbi, and he heard my, my, he heard this volunteer, David, his name was. He said, listen, I'm, I'm working him. I'm working 10 hours a day, 11 hours a day, 12 hours a day sometimes. Some, once in a while, I have an emergency nearby me. I have to go. What can I do? How can you fire me for a thing like that? I didn't go play poker. And I said, this guy's a good guy. He's saving lives and he's, he's working with guys. So they come, so the chickens are in a refrigerator anyways. What does it matter? Come 10 minutes later or an hour later. So this guy says, oh no, I have a guy delivering chickens for a job, not delivering babies. If he wants to deliver babies, so I tell him, let him deliver babies. I don't want him to deliver. So the rabbi listened to all of us and he says, you know what? According to Jewish halacha, he doesn't have to keep them working for him. He can fire him. Because you don't have a responsibility to keep a Hatzalah volunteer who can go out any time of day or night to leave you. And same way, my, you know, you live in a, in a home. Sometimes your spouse doesn't let you do this. But if you find the spouse that does, you're lucky. So, I, so he says, you could fire him, no problem. So we, we lost the court case. Then the rabbi says to this guy, you know what? If you bring him back to work, I'll make a deal with you. The 50-50, the 50-50, on the mitzvah of saving lives. He says, you never save a life, you're a butcher man. But this guy saves lives. If you let him work for you, I'll give you 50-50. So volunteer said, why am I giving 50% of my mitzvah? Says, I worked so hard on this, I, I trained, I was in the army, a paramedic. He says, no, 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 no. The rabbi says, you have nothing to lose because the mitzvah of saving lives is like fire. It's a fire, if you take a match. It doesn't, it doesn't take away from the father fire. Exactly, yeah. you have fire. You can't take away part of the fire if you light another fire. Mm. You're giving a mitzvah of a life-saving, which is the in, in the Torah, there is no bigger mitzvah than this. The rabbi says, give half a mitzvah. But you know, it's Israeli negotiations at the end of the day. So we were about to sign the contract. And then they, they got to the, some point, the, the owner of the butcher shop realized that it's 50-50 only during the weekday, the weekdays. What about the weekends? <laughs> Weekends too. The guy says, no, weekends I'm on my own. I don't work. He says, yeah, but you have money to buy food because of me. I want you to give me half. What a, what a, over this mitzvah. How beautiful weekends. is that? That's a beautiful thing. We were like starting a whole, almost like a fist fight about the weekends. <laughs> negotiations. 
finally, after compromising this, almost a deal went bad, and they decided to split 50-50 during the days of the work, and then weekends, it's 75-25. And that's how we finished the deal. <laughs> it's so, it's hilarious. Wow, what a story, Ellie. I mean... <laughs> Well, it sounds like Mashiach times when two Jews are fighting over that how much schar they're going to get from the mitzvah, which is limitless anyways, on paper. That's 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 well, pretty. That's, that's pretty, exactly if you think about how why volunteers really feel a stairs. They feel the same way I do. Over six thousand volunteers dedicate their life now for this mission. They stop work. I, I, I'll give you an example because you are. You're an incredible person. I see your videos everywhere. But if I offer you now a job, I offer you a job. I'll give you $2 million if you do a nice, good viral video on Shabbat. Take your video camera, take your crew, do a nice video on Shabbat. I don't know. Would you agree? Yeah, it's not. It's the, you got to have your principles. You gotta, you, if you lose that, you lose, your, you lose yourself. Right. So I tell you, I take all the, ortho, we have non-religious volunteers, of course, I'll take the Orthodox volunteers of Atzala. United Atzala volunteers in Mesherim, B'nai Brach, no matter where we are, the Orthodox Orthodox people, I'll offer them $2 million to drive a motorcycle on Shabbat in the middle of B'nai Brach. $2 million, a lot of money. I don't have that money, but I'm just offering that as a theory, right? They would say no. But if I offer them zero, drive the ambicycle to save a lady that's not even Jewish, not a member of the family. They don't even know this lady. It could be a lady from Rwanda who's in Israel and she fell in her house and she needs help. This man would drive, this volunteer would drive on an ambicycle on Shabbat to go help that person and save that life. Mm, that's, totally. that's the accomplishment that we have, that every single one of us did. I do want to be, before we start wrapping this up, I, I know you did touch, touch on earlier on how Yunet Hatzela was kept on going while you were a month sleeping. You were, in, you were out, you, know, you had COVID and you had a, a terrible reaction to it. How was that, just take me back to that space. How was that experience for you? And this is actually a question we do, I do ask on my Instagram people to send in the questions before I have a guest on. And this is actually a question that came in from Miriam Tenenbaum, a mutual friend of ours, someone who works for United Hatzalah. And she had a beautiful question saying, how has your perspective on life change, on life saving changed once you were on the receiving end of it? Well, I got sick in Miami. I was traveling trans United Hatzalah. All of a sudden, I didn't feel well. I ended up in a hospital. I was one of the first patients. This was in March, right after Purim. That was when everything started. And I, it was almost the end for me. I'd say goodbye to my children. The doctor said, my chances are very low. And I couldn't breathe. I was you angry. had that conversation? You had that, you said goodbye? Look, the doctors knew who I am. The doctors knew I know about, I know what intubating means. I'm not, you know, I, I'm doing this for 32 years of my life. So I know how many people survive from intubations. And I had a really, really bad reaction to COVID-19. And I was, I couldn't breathe. My, my lungs were shut down. And I, the doctor says, I, I was begging the doctors to tell me what's my condition. Finally, they said, listen, I said, what's it, what's the percentage of survival? So they don't like, I don't like hearing percentage of survival. It's not the right thing, but in Europe, they were saying 5% of the people that went on ventilators survived. In Spain, 
in Italy, China, the numbers never came right, but the, the numbers were very bad. So not in my favor, right? So I, I had to say goodbye to my family, which was the hardest thing in my life to say goodbye. This is it. I asked my children to be good kids, to be to do good things in their life, to do chesed. It was very, very hard. It was Friday afternoon. And then the doctors, you know, the doctor asked him to pray for me. He said, I'm an atheist. He said, do something good for me. So I said, just do chesed. I explained what chesed is. I wasn't Jewish. She says, oh, I like that idea. I'll do something good for you in your honor. So I woke up a month later and then the doctor came to visit me. He says, you should just know I prayed for you. And I started believing in God after you woke up. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It was funny to hear that from him. Ellie, whether you're on your, on your feet or on your back, you're inspiring people. Yeah. And uh, I woke up and, and I was worried about Atzala very, very, very much. And I, then I realized what it means to be a patient in a hospital, waking up in a diaper needing a nurse to help you. I realized that in Atzala, we always help people like it's their own family, no matter who they are. We go, when we treat them, we go down to their level. We, we try helping them, not to scare them and stand above them. You know, I would say, you go down and talk to the patient on your level. And now after being in the hospital and getting treated by nurses, when I had it, I needed someone to clean me up. And I couldn't move, I couldn't get on my bed. And then I realized we have to go down a few inches below the patient's level. Make the patient feel more important than you. And that's what I came out of being in the hospital as a patient. I think a lot of things came out of it, but this is one of them. It's huge. If you had the bandwidth to start another organization, what would be the purpose of it? What would it do? What would be the functionality? Uh, <laughs> I think it has to do with Atzala because I can't go somewhere like- No, there's something else. You gotta do Atzala. I'm saying we're, we're talking hypothetical now. I'll tell you what, I think I grew up as a kid, like we spoke before with ADD, HDAD, who knows, dyslexia, a little, everything yeah. you can imagine. And I was saved by being a volunteer in the neighborhood. I think my life was saved. I could have ended up, I was kicked out of school all the time. I was a bad student. I was a troublemaker. And if it wasn't for the ambulances, my life would have been, maybe who knows, I would have been in a, my parents would never have the nachas that they had if it wasn't for that. And I was saved, luckily, because I had that incident when I was six years old that pushed me towards it. Even if I, had, I didn't have an education, I forced myself to be in this. And I realized over the years, I adopted thousands of young kids my age into Atzala. Like, Uri, my son-in-law, who came at the age of 15 because he was kicked out of school and he was hanging out on the streets and his father begged me to take him in or else he's going to be a drug addict and who knows what happened with him. And I took a lot of children into Atzala who are, a lot of them were religious, orthodox kids. Being in the street for them would be very dangerous because once they open up, they open up to the end, it's, it's done. And forget about religion, that wasn't the main concern. It was like other things, you know, crime and other things they go into. And hundreds of kids were adopted by United Atzala over the years and become mentors, become incredible people. We started a program for them. They could start volunteering younger in logistics. If they do three years of logistics, volunteering logistics, and they have to study once a week Torah, and they have studies 
English, math, and other studies, we will let them be real volunteers and medical volunteers, and they become medical volunteers. Corey started when he was 15 years old. Two years later, he, he became a cybersecurity expert. Wow. He didn't from learn the from the training before. that he got through your program. Yes. He didn't know, he didn't know how to read before. And Uri came because his brother became addict, addicted to drugs and he wanted to save his life. And he wanted to do something good in his life. His father said, Hatzala is something he's dreaming to be one. But he's too young. I said, oh, you know what? Let him volunteer a couple of years in logistics, cleaning the ambulances, setting the equipment and everything else. And if he does well, he could also study and do other things. These kids, not only he became a uh, perfect student in the Technion program, Technion, one of the top schools in Israel for cybersecurity, he also learns Torah once a week, mm. finished six, six Masechtot, six parts in the Talmud that he finished. He never did that in school when he was in Yeshiva. Wow. That's something I'm very proud of. And a lot of these kids are not Orthodox. They become not Orthodox, but they're incredible mentions and they become good Jews, good people, non-Jews. And they become lifesavers at the end of the day. So that's one of my things I would do if I wasn't doing the life-saving part is saving children from falling out of, uh, you know, into the street and then ending up. Because sometimes they grow up a little different and they're not, they don't get along with their school or family. Yeah. It seems like a lot of guys, right? There's, I mean, it seems like people who do great things in life are those who didn't fit into a box. You know, who, who had like this tenacity, had this creative edge, they had this energy that couldn't be contained and people didn't know necessarily how to, how to utilize it, how to gift it and how to nurture it. Um, it's, it's, what do you think that, where that comes from and, and who in your life, I mean, I know you, you actually had your, the ability to witness and, and to have this drive to want to save people. So that sort of set you straight. Um, but when it comes to, when it comes to someone perhaps who's listening now, like a, a teen or a young adult um, who's wants to become more selfless. So they want to find their why any, any words of, of wisdom or advice around that? I'll tell you, first of all, sometimes like we say, they don't fit into the box. So they get kicked out of the box instead of making the box a little yeah, if it's square, just make it, a, you know, you can always bend the box a little. You don't have to always have exactly into the box. You have to ship something. It doesn't go exactly. So you could push it in and, change the box size a little. And that's exactly what you and me believe in. And I really think, you know what, if a person, especially us that grew up Orthodox, thank God for my parents. If it wasn't for my parents, I would never be where I am today. And I think a lot of kids are not, are not lucky to have parents like that. But parents who, it's either black or white, nothing in between, no other color between black and white. If you're not my color, you're out of us because we have brothers and sisters. We don't want them to, to follow your pathway. But unfortunately, they lose their children. And these children, many of them fall into situations where they don't have a way back. If you see how many kids, I have a program in Atzala today for these kids. I have another program where people who did small crimes, children, young kids, who did small crimes, stupidity crimes, so the judge says, instead of going to jail, go volunteer in Atzala in logistics. Wow. And I tell you, these kids end up, some of them are teenagers who do stupid things, driving or things, they get punishments instead of going to jail and then destroying their whole life. 
this is something that I have very close to my heart. Thank God I was never in a situation like that. I was always a good boy because I had good parents. But I saw other kids who didn't do well in school and, and, and didn't have a, go, a way to go. Nowhere invited them to come and they destroyed their lives and destroyed other people's lives, of course. And I think this is something that we could tell every youth never to give up. You have, you have, you, every person has a, a, a reason to live in this world. Every person in this world has a purpose. You're not like just a machine, like you're part of a machine. No, you have a purpose. Every human being has a purpose. So if you don't fit into the purpose and don't think you have to give up of everything, you have to change a little, change a little, but don't give up the essence of life itself and being a good human being and adding some value to the world. And if something stops you, find a way around it. Like Israeli chutzpah, you know, bias. Yeah, and, and, you, and you had that. You, you embodied that. You went ahead, you know, you saw an issue, you got those scanners, you, you went about it and, you've been, and you're fighting through it. You, you show up to, you know, you're sort of the, earlier on, especially the underdog in, in the scenario when you came to the ambulances and the unions and you had this chutzpah, this tenacity. You say, hey, you know what? You don't want to accept me a certain way. I'm going to show up and do it my way. I'm going to go ahead and pursue it. And I think that's a, a really beautiful way of elevating what we sometimes deem as not great chutzpah, but taking that and saying, no, I believe in this. I could go for this. I may not know where I'm going. I may not have it all clear out for me. I may not, but I could, if, with every step, doing the next right action, it'll lead to somewhere. Exactly. And everyone in this world has a purpose. And I always say that to people I save or people that get, you know, people of ours who are involved, you know what I'm saying? I see this guy comes over to me. He's a, he's a truck driver of a, uh, he, sorry, he works in the back of a, uh, um, a garbage truck in Jerusalem. And he, this guy has three kids. He saw a very bad accident happen a few years before. Uh, a kid run over by a bus and he was, picking up the garbage to put it in. He didn't know what to do. He was a garbage truck man, you know, like he didn't know any training or anything. And he saw the kid die. And then it took time for the ambulance to come. So he went and he went and he heard about joining United Atella. But he was, he felt like who would want to join a guy who works in a garbage truck? Like he goes, he has to make a good living, but he's, he's the end of the day, he's working in a garbage truck. And he was welcomed with a big welcome. He got the Ellie Beer hug. Big hug. And I gave him this big hug. And then a few, few months later, he joined. He was a very active volunteer because he works early in the morning. He goes to work three o'clock in the morning and he ends his job at nine o'clock in the morning. So he has a whole day to save lives. And he's running around saving with his own private car, but he would like an ambicycle. So we got a donor to donate an ambicycle in honor of someone and he gave it to him because he was very active. And he, he started saving more lives. And he calls me up. He says, I want to meet you. He meets me, okay, I meet him. He says, Ellie, you saved my life. I said, what do you mean I saved your life? He says, Ellie, you want to know my story? He says, I have three kids who not even once allow me to come to their school to meet their, their teachers. Every meeting with teachers, my wife had to go and not myself because my children were embarrassed that I work in the garbage truck. And they said, other kids make fun of them. And they call them, your father's a garbage man, you're a garbage child. You know, we're making fun of them like kids do. And he said to me, I didn't even go once to visit them in school. He said, a few weeks ago, I was called by United Atella because I went out to over 2000 emergencies in whatever amount of time, and I deserve an ambicycle. And they gave me a brand new ambicycle with a helmet, and a jacket, and everything, and all the medical supplies. And 
I was so excited. I got home from Hatzalah and I, I drive to my home. My kids see the heavy cycle. I put on the siren for them. I put on the lights. My sons were so excited that my son says to me, Abba, could you come to our school to show the other kids the heavy cycle? Wow. He says, Ellie, you have no idea what you did to me. He says, I drove to the school. The next day I came for a recess and all the kids were surrounding, hundreds of kids. They saw this empty cycle. I let them put on a siren. The school were happy about this. It was keeping the kids busy. He said, all of a sudden, my son, my, my son says to me, Abba, you are a hot salami. Wow. He says, I'm, so he says to me, Ellie, I'm not a garbage man. I'm not salami. Think about it. What a value of this person. His life changed. He's helping save lives. But now for him, his life is saved. That's such a beautiful story. I mean, that confidence and self-respect and what that instills in a person gives them purpose and meaning. Wow, beautiful, Ellie. You're, do you think we do this for no reason? We do this for a lot of reasons. It's, and there's so many different levels. You're not just saving, like you mentioned, the person who's on the stretcher. You're saving the person who's volunteering and the people who are watching it and their kids and their wives. And there's this ripple effect of just incredible beauty that takes place. <clears throat> All starting, Ellie. Wow. May you continue to be blessed to, to grow um, Unite Hatzalah and the other ventures that you're part of. And to this idea is so fantastic about really empowering every individual with the ability to go and save a life uh, through this app, through this technology. What, what, is, what is immediately, what's next? What's tw- uh, the goals for the Unite Hatzalah in, in the immediate future? I just want to finish my, my mission in Israel. 90 seconds everywhere. I still have places to cover. I still need that raise more funds to get more volunteers trained. I want to get more MB cycles. I want to get more. What's your annual budget? Well, now for the whole country is about almost 25, about $25 million a year. US. US dollars. Unfortunately, dollar is not so strong like it used to be. So it's a little more. <laughs> a little more powerful than the shekel so though. It's still more yeah. powerful. Than... Yeah. Wow. So, but thank God we have, we want to get to a few more. I want to join another thousand volunteers this year. We had less volunteers joined last year in 2020. I want to get more volunteers to join this year because we just need more volunteers. We had a few volunteers were left because of COVID and people got sick. A lot of volunteers got sick and some people are older. So we just need to get fresh blood into the organization. So I have a little more to do and, uh, and find the next uh, leaders of the organization, which I do. They're doing a great job. As I told you, the organization didn't stop for one second. We worked harder than ever this year, last year. So um, we have good mitzvahs to do. We want to do more. And, uh, Amazing. More Ellie. people join in and, and go into our website, israelrescue.org. Love if you could put it in your thing. Absolutely. Where, yeah, please do share. Where could people find more information about you, United Hatzela, social media? Social media is uh, United Hatzela. Hatzela is H-A-T-Z-A-L-A-H. We spell it differently, United Hatzalah. Uh, it's on social media of Israel, United Hatzalah of Israel, but also israelrescue.org is our website. And people can contact us. They want information. They want to support. They want, they want to learn more. They have a lot of great videos there. And they're going to see your video on our website too. Ooh. When, when the, um, we'll put all I think the- you have more followers than we do, but- <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you can't, you can't um, compare. And you also, um, you also did a great video with my buddy Nas as well. And that was really fantastic. Yes, um, Nas. 
Great guy. I love Lance. Yeah. Such a good big shout out to him and what he's yeah. doing out there. And um, Ellie, what's a great day for you? Every day. Honestly, every day is a great day for me. As long as we're saving lives. I, I think uh, my greatest day this last year, honestly, I, I, my greatest day was the day my grandson was born last year. It was my first grandson. Gabby, I'll show you a picture. He's <laughs> everywhere. Gabby. Oh, beautiful. For those who are listening, I'm right now looking at uh, the screensaver of Ellie's uh, for, uh, phone and a beautiful beautiful baby boy. So I had a lot of great days. Every single day is a great day. But when I became a grandfather in the age of 46, very late. Mm. So um, I, I, I really felt my, you know what? I'm finally a human being. Wow. That was the moment you felt complete. You felt whole. I feel complete. I'll tell you why. And every creature has and the shama life, you know, every creature has, uh, it could be a, a dog, a cat, uh, any animal really has a life. And I always thought, what's the difference between an animal and a human being? I really think, what's the difference? There is no difference. If you think about it, you know, we, we have the Torah, of course, animals don't have the Torah, but as a human being, what's the difference between an animal and a human being? If you think about it, animals have tremendous connection to their children. Not every animal, but some animals will kill if you would get close to their children. They love their children. Animals care, but you know, some animals are very smart, like human beings. Some animals are smarter than human beings. But no animal has a connection to the third generation. The only creature who has a connection to the third generation is a human being. And I felt that day when my grandson was born, Gabi, who's named after my father, I am finally, I'm a, like I, I'm, I'm a, like we said before, I, I'm a human being. Like I, this is it. Not that I, I felt incomplete before, but I really felt complete when my child had a child. Wow, that's powerful. Well, Ellie, may you continue to to be blessed to have much nachas from Gabi, from your children, from future uh, grandkids, without Hashem, and may the United Hatzalah family continue to grow and to keep on saving lives on all the different levels, all different aspects, and you're a shining light. And it's, it's, I'm so appreciative that you took the time to be on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast episode. And thank you, Ellie, so much for showing up and sharing what you have today with me and with all the listeners. And friends, I just launched a Patreon, a simple way for you to support the podcast. So do check it out at patreon.com slash the great day podcast. Your support goes a long, long way. There's some fun little giveaways there as well. Thank you so much for all your support thus far. And if you haven't yet, subscribe, rate, comment on the podcast, wherever you listen to the podcast. Your support means a lot to me. So thank you. So until next time, stay positive, be happy. I'm Mayor Kay, and have a great day.